Okay, restart. <laughs> we, uh, we're looking into 1 John chapter 2, verses to which I'm sure we are all familiar, and yet we need to hear again, and again, and again. We're taught in Scripture that we are indeed leaky vessels, and we can become so distracted by the activities of the day and the activities that we find ourselves engaged in in this world that uh, we find it necessary to repeat, to reconsider. That's what the word meditate means, really, that we think and we rethink. And so that's a good way for us to study the Word of God. We're going to be looking into 1 John chapter 2, and we'll be looking into verses 15 through 17. So let's ask God's mercy and blessing upon the ministry of his word. Our Father, as we come before thee, we rejoice in thy grace and goodness and mercy, mercies that are so incredibly abundant through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee, our Father, for salvation in Christ by him and by thy grace through the cross. We ask thee, Father, this night for thy blessing, thy help, for the leading, the inward teaching of thy Holy Spirit. We do pray that as we consider this serious command of thine, that we will be able to comprehend the meaning of it and have hearts to walk in obedience thereto. We are poor and needy. We have nothing to bring thee. We stand always in all things from thee. And thou art gracious and merciful to provide and to give thy grace in such a way that thy name would be glorified. For this we pray in the Lord Jesus' holy and blessed name. Amen. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 through 17. John the Apostle writes, a man writes these words, but God moves him to write these words. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the world. But it is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Well, we title this message, What is Worldliness? And of course, as we consider that, we know that we have biblical truth uh, such as separation that belongs to God's people. God's people are to be a separate people from the world. That doesn't mean, as some have interpreted it, that we get into communities and we segregate ourselves from the world. Not at all. If we did that, we would not be able to be light. We wouldn't be able to be salt. 
we wouldn't be able to carry the gospel into the communities and into the workplace if that were the case. And, of course, that is a failure to comprehend that the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, prayed to the Father, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. But God calls us to be separate, to separate ourselves from the ways of the world, to be different. And, of course, he makes the difference, just as the Apostle Paul writes and asks the question when he writes to the Corinthians, who maketh thee to differ from another? Religiously, there are those who can attend religious services, those who, who attend a church, but then they're no different than the world. They're no different in what they seek than the world. They're no different in what they desire than the world. They're no different in their daily activities from the world and the way they conduct them. They are of the world, even though religious. And yet God makes his people to differ. When a sinner is saved by the grace of God, brought to a genuine conversion. That one comes, and that's not an easy thing, conversion, because it means the old life has to go. The old way of living has to go. The old sinfulness is to be put away. And one has come to realize that only through Christ and by the cross are they brought to the living God. And in looking to him, trusting in him, being brought to him. Those who are genuinely saved are brought into union with his death. The old person dies with Christ, that we might live a new life unto God through him. It is a radical thing, if you please. When one is saved, sometimes that word is used so loosely. It's used by what men do or something they perform or some... A prayer they pray, but it's a radical thing in Scripture. Conversion, salvation, coming out of the world. When God calls by the gospel, it is a separating call. He separates us from the profaneness of this world. He separates us from the life we did live before coming to Christ. And knowing the wondrousness of free and glorious forgiveness of sin and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin to live a different life. That life is called newness of life in Scripture. But as we, uh, as we look at these verses in 1 John chapter 2 again, we want to expound upon the question, what is worldliness? And we're attempting to answer that only from Scripture only from its meaning in Scripture and what we're taught here. And what then should our attitude be toward the world in the sense of which it's meant here in this epistle of 1 John and in the Lord's own words, as we have in, for instance, um, John chapter 15, when he says, I have chosen you out of the world. Of course, the book of Revelation, we are redeemed to God out of the world. 
We're redeemed by his blood, set apart unto God to be different, distinct, unworldly, unlike we were before coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What is meant here by the world as used by John is a world we're commanded not to love. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John says that we're not to love the world. Paul says we are not to be conformed to the world. In Romans chapter 12, of course, verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We no longer are to walk in the will of the world. We're no longer to fashion our lives after the world. We are to have the word of God that sets us apart. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And certainly, these two things, loving not the world, being not conformed to the world, go hand in hand. This matter of worldliness as to exactly what is meant by it, it's been a matter of much confusion. Of course, among professing Christians, there are those who view it as an outward thing, only simply where one goes, how they dress, and so forth. And that's important. That's important because where we go, what we dress expresses our heart. What we conform ourselves unto is what we desire, what we go after. But it's not simply outward. It's inward. All of this sometimes brings great confusion, especially where there's mere profession of faith. But we believe that a careful study of the Word of God leads to the right conclusion as to the meaning of the command, love not the world. And we believe that the greatest matter of understanding the meaning comes as we perceived or are able to perceive the way John uses the word world here in this context. God's people, again, are called out of the world. The Lord Jesus says in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. We are said to be not of the world. The Lord Jesus says in John 17, uh, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And John makes it very clear here that those who are of the world shall perish with the world. Pretty serious stuff. Those who are of the world, it doesn't matter what they profess, it doesn't matter what they say, it matters if there's a demonstration that they're no longer living in the ways of this world, but according to the will of God. God's people, when saved by his grace, are not removed from the world. That is either in a bodily sense 
or as we said in segregated congregations that live together and separate themselves physically from the world. We're called to be light. We're called to be salt. We're called to be living epistles of Christ to a world in darkness. And you have to be in contact with the world in order to be so. They're not taken out of the world, but they're made to differ from the world. And to be said to be not of the world means that they're no longer to live in the ways that characterize the world in its condition of being fallen and from God. They have to become distinct. They become separate, different from those who are of the world, worldly. And to understand how this distinction comes about requires that we understand the relationship between the world in a spiritual sense and the kingdom of God. When God saves one, they are brought into his kingdom. They're brought into the very kingdom of God. They come under a different rule than was before genuine salvation and conversion. And the world and the kingdom of God always stand at odds with one another. They're odds. They're opposites. There is an unresolvable enmity between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And to be in the one and to be under the sway of the powers of the one is to be irreconcilably opposed to the other. John makes it very clear that one cannot love God and do his will and all at the same time love the world because the two things are utterly irreconcilable. As in verse 17, the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The word doeth signifies practices. So it should be our fervent interest to learn firmly, determinately, what it means not to love the world. And so what is John talking about here? What's meant by the world when John writes this command? In what way are we not to love it? The word world, the word is cosmos. And the word in itself means the sum total of human life in the ordered world. Now, that would, is what it means. It means an orderly system. And in itself, just meaning an orderly system is not what he means. But in the context, the sum total of human life in the ordered world, considered apart from, alienated from, and hostile to God, and of the earthly things which seduce from God. 
to love the world in the sense that he writes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and we'll consider later, to love the world in that regard, to go after the world as one's chief end, to go after the things of the world is what one desires greatly. That, of course, is to be a spiritual adulterer, according to James chapter 4, verse 4, when James writes, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. The world, or cosmos, of course, has a very broad meaning. And three things. In itself, it simply means an orderly arrangement. It can be, and has been, applied to the whole created universe or the physical earth in which we live with all of its intricacies, all of it working together. Of course, in this sense, the universe, the world, universe meaning unity in diversity, which only God could bring into being and sustain, shows his eternal power and Godhead, we're taught, of course, in Romans chapter 1. It sometimes speaks, secondly, of mankind in general, or man, collectively. The third sense, though, is an ethical sense in which the word world is used. It involves the principles which govern action, or what we may call the ways of the world. So, when John writes here, the command, love not the world, he's not saying we're not to admire God's handiwork in creation. Indeed, we are. Indeed, we are. We marvel when we look at uh, the mountains and we look at the trees and we look at the animals. I'm just amazed sometimes at all the diversity of animals that God created. When we go down to the sea, the psalmist says we see the works of God. When we look into the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We admire that. We admire God's handiwork. It's not talking about not loving people. If anybody should love people, it should be the one who has come to know the wondrousness of God's sovereign love. That we who were totally unworthy of that love, we are to love others. We are to love them enough to pray for them, to give them the word of God, to desire their salvation, to want to see the best for them. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus Christ said we're to love even who? Our enemies. Now, it's not talking about not loving people. But as children of God, we're not to love adopt or be governed by that which rules the fallen world apart from God. One Greek scholar wrote on John's usage here, cosmos refers to an ordered system. Here it is the ordered system of which Satan is the head. His fallen angels and demons are his emissaries. And the unsaved of the human race are his subjects. Together with those purposes, pursuits, pleasures, practices, and places where God is not wanted, 
Much in this world system is religious, cultured, refined, and intellectual. But it is anti-God and anti-Christ. You see, the world is under the sway of Satan. That fallen being who wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God and was brought down very quickly. That fallen being that led our first parents into sin because he wanted rule of the earth and God had given it to them. That fallen being the world in its fallen state is under his sway. He rules in the affairs of this world. That's why we have to be extremely careful with the media, with the things of this world, with whom we converse and make our friends. The world has fallen from God. through the depraved sin nature of mankind. The devil is called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world. He's called in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. He's called in John chapter 12, verse 31, the prince of this world. He continually works in the natural man. That's a solemn thing. The scripture says in Ephesians, he now worketh in the children of disobedience. He works in man constantly. He leads in a way against God and his right ways. Even unconsciously, he works in men in the hearts of all who are but natural, unregenerate, unsaved, not born of God, not brought into a living union with the Lord Jesus Christ, not called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, but abiding in darkness. Matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 19, the apostle, using the world in this sense, writes, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. That is, in the one who is wicked. And so, in understanding this, we're to understand that the world lieth here does not mean to recline. If you have a nice sunny day and you want to get out and get some sun and you have a, lo a lounge chair and you want to take it out in your backyard, you want to stretch out upon it, you recline. But, if you look at the foundation on your house and the bricks there, you'll see them set in mortar. That's what this means more than reclining. It means to be set in. That's where the world is under Satan. It means to be under his power, set under the power of the wicked one. And that's a solemn thing. And we all who've been saved by God's grace know it so because we've been there. Why so? In Ephesians chapter 2, you hath he quickened, made alive. You hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, and the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation the way we lived in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We've been there. We've been there. We know what it is to be controlled by fallen desires. We know what it is to seek things that are sinful and wrong. We know what it is to lie and cheat and steal and have lustful desires. We know what it is. We've been there. Even those whom God elects unto salvation were no different than the world in the fallen state of unregeneracy. And when we say that Satan rules through sin, sin in the human heart in this fallen world, we're not necessarily speaking of immoral acts only. Indeed, he leads to immoral acts but simply of that awful principle which has moved men from God to make themselves center, what they desire center. You see then, God and the world in this sense always stands irreconcilably opposed to one another. You cannot not simply should not you cannot have your heart your affection give your time and life purpose to the world and its ways and all at the same time love the father it's impossible love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him you cannot have your heart on things in the world or be covetous for worldly gain and pleasures and serve God. It's impossible. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Those who the world try are those who try to hold the world with one hand and God with the other would only be doing so so that hopefully God would bless them in a worldly way, wanting the things of this world, wanting the pleasures and the ease of this world, wanting the comforts and the things they can get in this world. They don't have their heart or affection on things above. They don't comprehend and lay hold of a heavenly inheritance. They don't realize what God's people realize, that they are a distinct people who've been given newness of life, a heavenly people, a people that belong to God and no longer belong to this fallen world, who've been redeemed, bought, 
by the blood of the Son of God and who belong to him. The religious will end up the worst of all. Better had they not taken and professed faith in Christ than to do so but have their heart really in the world and love the things of it. There is total cleavage between what pleases God and what characterizes the world. So in verse 16, for all that is in the world. Notice that word, all. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Of course, we have here these three characteristics of the worldly. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh means those desires that come from the fallen nature. Irrespective of the commands of God, of course. Those fallen desires that desire those things God forbids. And even sometimes, as Paul wrote in Romans 7, inflamed by those commands. Command them not to do what they desire to do. And if they desire and seek, even if it's not something that's committed, still the Lord Jesus said it's sin. And it manifests sin. The lust of the flesh. Desires that come from the fallen nature of man apart from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word flesh, of course, as used particularly in Paul's writings, the word flesh is not speaking of the material of the, material of the body, the fleshly body. It's rather speaking of the principles that govern activity. And... Uh, the principles that bring about what one does in the body. For instance, in Romans 8.13, he writes, if you live after the flesh, if the flesh dictates to you what you do, if this fallen nature and desires dictate to you what you do, and you walk in that way, if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. That's a solemn thing, isn't it? But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Problem is, we still have sin dwelling in this body. We still have sin that we have to contend against. But we have a power we didn't have. We have a power that was not there before God saved us by his grace. And as in 1 John 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. These are principles of self-pleasing, self-seeking. It can speak even of the thoughts and desires of the heart. Whether or not those things are acted out, which are based upon the pleasing of sinful self, the desire to fulfill base lusts, desires. One can actually be very religious 
One can outwardly appear to be very righteous in the eyes of men and be incredibly worldly. Remove one from the world, put them out by themselves away from its influences, and if they're not in Christ, they're still worldly. The problem is still within. So one can be very religious. And even outwardly, morally clean. While they yet remain filthy and unclean in heart. Of course, we know the Lord Jesus said that to the most religious people in Israel, didn't he? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you appear righteous outward to men. Inward, you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. There were those among God's people. They feasted with them. It seemed like the early church was eating together a lot. They, they came together and they did this and they shared their food so that the poor could have it. Many times they had what was called a love feast, not a religious thing that's used in our day called that, but an actual love feast that took care of those in the congregation in this way. And Peter says, yet there were among them those that ate of their love feast but their eyes could not cease from adultery. They could not cease from sin. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes speaks of the way in which covetous desires enter into the soul. In the book of Joshua... Joshua was taking the armies of Israel into Canaan to take the land. And there was war against seven nations that were stronger and mightier. They came to a small place. And they were unable to overcome that small place. Because God said to Joshua, when he came and fell on his face and said, what are we going to do? He said, get up. There's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. That's why they couldn't take that small place. There was sin in the camp. There was a man named Achan. He saw, he said, a wedge of gold, some silver, a goodly Babylonish garment. He uses the words in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. I saw, I coveted, I took. To have one's heart in this world or the things of this world. To covet after more and more of this world. Is to remove the heart, as it were, from, from God and his truth. It's to make an idol of things. And of course, in Ephesians, we learn that covetousness is idolatry. Covetous desires that control one. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And you read Job 
You read a man who sought to walk with God every way he could in the right way, and yet Satan, of course, we know, tried him sorely. But you have a man who says, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. I guard what I look upon. I guard what is allowed to be put before my sight. Boy, how we need that today with the television and the media and the computers. Desperately. Because it's deadening men and preventing them from the right reception of God's truth. It's under the realm of the wicked one. And it's a very solemn thing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The pride of life or the supposed self-sufficiency and self-exaltation that lifts up one in their own eyes, sometimes to the despite of others. Well, when one lifts up themselves, they are generally those who despise others. The ambition for self-attainment and self-satisfaction without the purpose to glorify God in all things and to thankfully acknowledge him as the only source of all good. You see, men want the praise of men. They want them to do something for them. But the scripture teaches us that we're to do what we do to the glory of God, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You wonder how much that complied with in our day. The pride of life. I'm better than somebody else. I can do this better than somebody else. I am worthy more than somebody else. No. Everything you and I have has come from God and it's to be for his glory. That is to be used in whatever way. This pride of life is opposed to a trusting humility in the supremacy of God over all things. We have a hard time. We don't have too difficult a time understanding that God is sovereign. We're taught it in Scripture clearly. We have a difficulty submitting to it, realizing that God is over everything that happens and comes our way and that he has the greatest purpose in it. Of course, we know, indeed, that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is worldly, that that's the very avenue Satan used to tempt Eve. That's the very way he tempted Eve with the tree that he must have been standing right at and showed just how beautiful it was. That it was good for fruit. Did he take and eat of it himself? We don't know. That it was a tree to be making one wise. As a matter of fact, you'll be like God. She looked. She desired. She ate of it. She gave it to her husband with her. Obviously, he was right there. And he did eat of it. That's how this came into the world. That's how all of this worldliness came about. 
absolutely nothing which characterizes this fallen world pleases God. All that is in the world, isn't that some word? All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. All here is of the world. All of its principles opposing God and his absolute right over all things. His right to order all the principles of life in him alone. We owe our life to him. We owe our all to him. He is the creator. When Satan brought the false doctrine of evolution to the school system in this country, that was one of the greatest evils that happened in education. And it's showing it out to this day. Now we've come to insane perversions demonically in our own nation. And unless God is merciful and brings about an actual awakening, it won't get better. It might ease up here and there, but it'll get worse over the long run. This is why no one can come to God except through Christ and his cross. If we come to Christ, it must be that we die. That we die to the old person that was brought into this world in sin. That we die with Christ. And we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. That's what's pictured in baptism. Dead with Christ. Dead to the old person. Dead to sin. In Christ. Alive unto God through him. Salvation is a radical thing. Today it's been placed in such a religious category. and Made so easy. No, no. No one comes to Christ unless they're ready to die to self. And to come to an actual repentance from sin. No one can retain their life in the world in this sense and have eternal life. Because everything about it poses God in his right ways. The Lord Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you're to have God's salvation, then you must come out of the world. The gospel call is a separating call. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. You only come out of the world when there's a genuine self-abandoned trust in Christ alone and his cross alone. Then you can say with Paul, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, 
and I into the world. You can rejoice as he writes in Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. So then we consider why the only reasonable course there is is to turn your back upon sin and the ways of the world and to lie humbled at the foot of the cross of Christ and submit yourself under God's hand. In verse 17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It's absolute folly to spend up your life upon that which you're going to surely lose, isn't it? What folly? To spend up your life on what's going to be lost. He who loves the world will without fail perish with the world. And there will be nothing ever to desire thereafter except a drop of water to quench the thirst in hell. It's not reasonable to retain what you will lose anyway. When if you lose it now, you can gain what you'll never lose. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We read somebody who knew that and said, What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Daniel had several lessons on three words. Remember Lot's wife. Those who truly come to Christ. They move out of that which is destined to destruction. And they come under the rule of that which lasts forever. Because they've been given a gift by God's grace. And that's eternal life. Eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. To come to Christ. Is to be moved from the rule of sin and Satan. Unto God. And to have and submit to a whole new standard of conduct. Not fashioning ourselves after the world, after what God teaches. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. 
but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to move from the power of sin and to be moved into the power of godliness. It's to be an heir of God, an heir of life, a joint heir with Christ himself. It's the only true gain there is. Whatever God may afford us in this world, however he may prosper you in this world, it's not going to be kept long. It's not going to be long in possession. Every day we're closer to leaving. Every day we should seek to have our hearts more and more on things that matter for eternity. Every day seeking to be an instrument in God's hands for his good toward others. And to bear the light of his truth in this world. Every day we're closer to leaving it or to Christ's coming than the day before. The only gain is Christ and to have him. Pretty important, that command, isn't it? Um, a good thing, Bob is going to be able to see uh, a doctor, a urologist, Friday. And uh, he's had a hard time because um, he didn't have the test that would have shown his UTI um, days earlier, which should have been and evidently was neglected to be taken when he went to a doctor and uh, was discovered much later. Uh, yesterday... I haven't talked with him today, but yesterday uh, he seemed to be some better. So hopefully uh, the antibiotic is working, and uh, they will be able to tell about that. The urologist, I'm sure, and see if he needs more. So pray for Bob and for Carol as uh, they go through this particular trial. Pastor Larry Dean's wife, Greta, a good friend of Carolyn. She's having some incredibly severe surgery next Tuesday. Surgery on her back that's so intricate that one small mistake could cripple her. And that's, uh, uh, but she has a hard time walking anyway. She had a knee replacement, same time I did. Uh, she just had one? Yeah, just one. And uh, she's, you know, she, uh, we kind of were in competition with each other when we had a knee replacement. I, I really wasn't, but Carolyn put me in competition with her. You're, you're not going to let a girl beat you. And she'd come tell me these things. But, uh, but she's having very serious, very serious surgery. And uh, <clears throat> uh, that's upcoming next Tuesday. Do pray for Greta. The ladies are going to be meeting uh, this Saturday, beginning again their... Uh, their Saturday fellowship and Bible study, which I know that's a, a blessed spiritual time for them. So pray for that.
You want me to read it? This is from Greta, right? No, this is Dawn. Oh, Dawn. Okay. Can we please add on prayer list Barbara Lynn's daughter, Aaron, who is pregnant, has COVID. Her husband has COVID. And Aaron's little boy is still negative at this time. Pray about my knee, my stern, and my stem and the right knee replacement is moving and is on a recall and class action lawsuit. When I went to the doctor last week, he wanted to replace it within two months. I told him due to our house situation, he told me, evidently it was not the time, he told me I need to be very careful and see him again in two months, and we are scheduling surgery at that time to have my knee replacement replaced. And so I have to have that again. Do we have other special prayer requests? Okay, Daniel, we can uh, we can stop our live stream. Those at home, hopefully, will be praying, and uh, we can pray here. praying and if you fellows would pray we'll pray in heart with you
Thank you. 